You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Good evening, and welcome to the Pratt Library's Writer's Live series. I am Vivian Fisher, Deputy Director of Pratt in the State Library Resource Center and Manager of the African American Department, and I bring you greetings. This evening, we are very pleased to have Dr. David Taft-Terry, Assistant Professor of of History at Morgan State University. Dr. Terry's work, The Struggle in the Urban South, Confronting Jim Crow in Baltimore Before the Movement, is his, I believe, first book. And we are very proud to have Dr. Terry here. This work examines Baltimore, one of the South's largest cities, as a crucible of segregationist laws and practices. Through the example of Baltimore, Maryland, David Taft-Terry explores the historical importance of African-American resistance to Jim Crow laws in the South's largest cities. Terry also adds to our understanding of the underexplored historical period of the civil rights movement prior to the 1960s. Along the way, African-Americans worked to define equality for themselves and to gain the required power to demand it. They forged the protest, protest tradition of an enduring black struggle for equality in the urban South. By the 1960s, that struggle had inspired a national civil rights movement. Please join me in welcoming David Terry to the Pratt Library. Good evening. Thank you all for coming out on yet another ridiculously hot July day here in uh, the great state of Maryland. Um, I want to first of all thank, uh, I can call her Vivian, I've known her for 25 years, so I'd like to thank Vivian and the Pratt Library for making this opportunity available, and certainly for you all uh, to come, in, come out and support me and hopefully uh, find something that I have to say interesting and have an interesting conversation about Baltimore and about civil rights and the 20th century uh, uh, to boot. Um, this project... Uh, is, is one of those classic long time in coming uh, projects. Um, I see a lot of people here from my various walks in life. Uh, as, as Vivian uh, uh, pointed out, I'm on the fa- history faculty at Morgan, uh, but I'm relatively new in that capacity. I had a few other public history stops along the way, and I see many people who I knew from the, that background. Uh, I was the executive director and curator at the Reginald Lewis Museum, most directly before. Uh, I uh, spent time as the African-Americanist on the staff of the Maryland State Archives uh, before that. So uh, so um, as a project from graduate school, this, this, what is now this book has been with me and has reflected many of the changes, not only uh, uh, for me as a professional, but also in terms of my perspective on the, the subject matter covered in the book. It started out as a dissertation uh, at Howard University, where I did my doctoral work. Uh, then it evolved into a biography of Carl Murphy, who was the uh, longtime 
uh, leader of the Baltimore Afro-American newspapers, very much interested in the role that the black press played in carrying the civil rights struggle uh, along. But ultimately, in its final form, uh, uh, what I have is a book that asks a few questions that I think are worthy of both where historians are now, but also well, where we are now as a society as we attempt to grapple with our past and, and put it to the best use as we move into uh, our future. Um, before we started, uh, I pointed out to Ms. Fisher uh, some of the photographs uh, in the center section of the book that I pulled from uh, the collections here, and I mention that now to say to those of you who I see uh, in the audience who are students, uh, even graduate students, just the wonderful collections that are here at the Pratt Library and at institutions both here in the state of Maryland and accessible to us uh, uh, nearby, such, such as the Library of Congress. Uh, if you have a chance to thumb through the book, you will see that there are a wide uh, array of archival sources, uh, that I took advantage of, but also uh, a wonderful uh, human uh, uh, collection, both in terms of oral histories that you find at the State Archives, uh, at the Historical Society, certainly here at the Pratt Library, and even some folks who uh, uh, opened up uh, to me about their pasts and their family history. So uh, that is also something I think you would, would enjoy. What I want to do with the time we have here is just give you an overview of what the book was about, and uh, hopefully we'll have some time to talk in terms of question and answering periods uh, afterwards. But rather than go sort of blow by blow in terms of what the book covered, I want to talk about some of the big ideas that I attempted to uh, grapple with uh, through the course of this book, and hopefully you will find them as interesting uh, as I did. Uh, the book's title, uh, The Struggle and the urban South, confronting Jim Crow in Baltimore uh, before the movement. Um, I intentionally made that uh, uh, not necessarily a complicated title. It's a mouthful, right? It, it tries to do a lot. For those of you who are familiar with uh, civil rights history in the United States, you know that uh, in the last 20 years or so, we've really engaged a conversation about what the civil rights movement was, where the civil rights movement uh, took place, who it entailed, what it, what it tried to accomplish, what it in fact did accomplish. So I wanted to do two things along those lines with this book. First was to engage that conversation that we're having about the civil rights movement. But more so, I wanted to bring Baltimore into the conversation in ways that had not necessarily been uh, uh, entertained uh, in the past. There have been wonderful research uh, uh, opportunity, uh, efforts, wonderful books published about Baltimore's uh, civil rights legacy uh, in the last 15 to 20 years, and, and some classic works are even older than that. But by and large, uh, they hold Baltimore sort of in a local bubble, if you will. We get a very clean sense of what took place in Baltimore and who the key figures are. Uh, but we don't always get the best picture of how it connected to the larger rhythms of the civil rights movement or other social justice movements that are sort of woven into the civil rights narrative. So I tried to do that with my book in ways I'll explain uh, in just a moment. Secondly, I wanted to recast how we understand the civil rights history uh, of Baltimore by placing Baltimore in an uncommon or uh, a less than common uh, context. And that is Baltimore as 
uh, a locale in the American South. Right? Uh, for those of you who are history students, those of you who uh, are familiar with the way in which Maryland's history has been told, uh, we're often placed within an array of shifting sort of characteristics. Uh, the border south, the middle ground, these things have their uh, accuracy and they certainly reflect certain aspects of our history. But what I was trying to do with this book, uh, with my focus as it is on black Baltimoreans and the ways in which they understood uh, themselves and their struggle was to remove what I thought was some of the, the uh, language that we've used to talk about Baltimore, to talk about Maryland, and give you a sense of how people in real time understood themselves. And I found the Southern framework to be most useful in that way. Uh, and I'll explain in greater depth uh, uh, shortly, but suffice it to say, uh, when 20th century and late 19th century African Americans understood the South, they understood it through some very basic premise and through very basic lens. The idea and the legacy of slavery is one. The idea and the perpetuation of racial segregation is another. Uh, Baltimore in that regard, Maryland certainly in those regards, uh, were as southern as many other uh, states, uh, many other locales. So rather than pull, I think the, um, the more complex or in many ways the more confusing descriptions of how black Baltimoreans uh, uh, understood their reality and therefore shaped their uh, resistance to what they needed to change about that reality, I thought the southern framework uh, was one that was useful. Uh, in that regard as well, I tried to use Baltimore to talk about another aspect of African-American history, the struggle, the civil rights uh, history that is often uh, less, than, uh, less than obvious. And that is the notion of the city, the notion of urban life. When we talk about Southern history, particularly with regard to African-American struggle in the civil rights movement, we're often presented with locales that are at best small towns, but often they're rural, often they're uh, uh, crossroads uh, communities. But uh, through most of the 20th century and very much related to how and under which, uh, what circumstances uh, African-Americans had to struggle, the circumstances that produced racial segregation, the notion of urban life, the facts of, as I, the, the term I use, urbanicity, are everywhere per present and it very much shapes how these people understand both their resistance as well as what their goal setting should be uh, within that, that resistance. Another of the big ideas that I try to uh, deal with in terms of this book is the notion of how we should understand historical people in terms of what they are able to perceive as the possibilities for their resistance, right? Um, too often, particularly since so much of the civil rights history is relevant to how we understand social justice struggle in our own time, uh, we reduce what we understand about how people struggled to uh, easy dichotomies. Some people were afraid some people were brave, right? Some people were radical, some people were conservative. But what I try to do uh, with this book, and the reason that the book has such a long 
uh, period time stretching from late uh, periodization stretching from the late 19th century into the mid 19, uh, 20th century until quite literally 1959 is because over that time we see the circumstances uh, for resistance shifting. We see the obstacles that people are facing shifting. So quite often uh, the people who are perceiving themselves as quite frankly pushing the envelope quite frankly, and to use a word that we would understand today, quite frankly, being radical, uh, then by subsequent generations disparaged for being anything but radical. And if we're really going to make the history usable, if we're really going to understand how people were able to look at their own circumstances in their own sort of time frames and make the best uses of that information, uh, I'm trying to, I try to take very pointed uh, efforts uh, in the book to, uh, to move us away from those easy tropes of, of, again, courage versus fear. So what is the uh, basic narrative of uh, the Baltimore African-American struggle? Some of you, again, are, are scholars in the field, but since most of us are not, uh, uh, let me just briefly sort of uh, review what we have uh, for a long time understood to be the Baltimore civil rights narrative, right? And, and that is that uh, after, the rise, after the creation of Jim Crow segregation, separate but equal segregation, sometime in the uh, early 1900s, that by the 1930s, uh, a branch of, the, of the, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People was created here, and that out of that branch's activities, a fairly unbroken chain of developing events, building block events, beginning with uh, local protests against segregation uh, in uh, hiring practices on Pennsylvania Avenue, including de successful desegregations of the uh, uh, professional and graduate schools ultimately at the University of Maryland, uh, participating ultimately by the 1960s in the nonviolent direct action efforts that ultimately lead to what we are uh, more familiar with in terms of the, the, the works of folks like Martin Luther King Jr. and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Uh, what I argue with this book and where I join other works that have tackled this subject uh, is the idea that there's a much deeper nuance that is available to us if we're able to look, if, if we're able to understand what we see. And by and large, this asks us to understand not how people were received by others, not how, for example, the Baltimore uh, effort was perceived by others outside of Baltimore, but how Baltimoreans themselves understood themselves to be struggling and what were the goals that they set for themselves uh, in that struggle. So over the course of the six chapters in the book, what I try to do is set a narrative timeline so that you're able to follow the chronology of how these things develop, but also create some thematic efforts where, or th thematic uh, opportunities for you to engage different uh, aspects of the struggle. So the idea of uh, uh, fighting segregation in housing, fighting segregation in recreation, of course fighting segregation in access to public space, fighting segregation uh, in, in our recreation. So uh, beyond simply giving you a blow-by-blow, blow, I try to create these uh, thematic uh, uh, approaches. 
along the way, uh, as you move through the chapters of the book, uh, there's certain recurring figures, certain tropes that appear over and over again uh, uh, that help us see how the Baltimore struggle was able to not only uh, develop itself, but where and how it is able to be connected to struggles outside of Baltimore. Uh, one of the major uh, takeaways from this book is the idea that what we understand to be the civil rights movement, at least in our popular understanding, is largely the way folks here in Baltimore outside of the African-American community and more regionally across the South, how folks outside of the Southern black community engaged and perceived what was happening. To, to say that differently, um, most of the civil rights movement, there's a, the, the 60s uh, 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 anthem by uh, the last poets, uh, the civil right, the, the uh, movement will not be televised. That is true, but I would rephrase it to say the movement was not televised until it was televised, until it was replaced ultimately by different programming. Uh, the reason, the rationale for starting a book like this in the 1890s is to very much suggest that if we look back that far and we understand how Jim Crow was ultimately constructed, that we can see very purposeful, very organized, very sustained efforts to resist and to countermand ultimately what Jim Crow was about from the very beginning. And that it's only at a certain point, or more accurately certain points, that groups outside of the black community engage, elevate, illuminate what's happening. So to understand the rhythms of how outside groups are engaging this, what I call this black struggle, helps us to understand the nature of that struggle and how uh, uh, others' participation was perceived, what its impact was, how it shaped uh, the nature of that struggle. But just to sort of give you, again, this sort of backdrop, uh, how many have, not, have never heard the term Jim Crow segregation, speaking mainly to the younger folks. There are a few kids in here, so I know most of the adults still, right? I'm not putting you on the spot. Um, just very quickly, very briefly, not very long after racial slavery was ended in the United States, African Americans, uh, like other Americans, we're moving into the 20th century. We're moving through the late 19th century, the 1870s, the 1880s, the 1890s, in some very familiar ways, or ways we would find very familiar, uh, even to our modern sensibilities. Uh, education is important. School building, uh, building of inst educational institutions, uh, uh, social welfare organizations, churches, fraternities, uh, social groups, uh, all sorts of collective energy being put uh, to the purpose of community building. Right? And at the same time, uh, our nation, like much of uh, uh, the Western world, is embracing urbanization in ways in which uh, had not previously uh, been, been the case. And this is true even in the United States South, which is very much still rebuilding itself after 
of the American Civil War. Uh, it is decided, it is agrees, agreed upon, it, is, it, is, it comes to pass in the very obvious and also uh, not so obvious ways in which these things happen, uh, that the freedom that the former slaves had won uh, with the help of others was not going to be a complete freedom. And the mechanisms put in place to uh, develop or to undergird that incompleteness is what we call Jim Crow segregation or racial segregation. Uh, the thing that separates Jim Crow segregation, uh, which is the term I use for the type of segregation that occurred in the southern states, versus the uh, persistent and often as effective, yet uh, uh, not necessarily organized or legally mandated forms that we find elsewhere in the, in the country is the weight of, of enforcement, is the weight of the state's enforcement powers that Jim Crow uh, segregation uh, enjoyed. Um, in, and again, uh, not to, to get too down in the weeds, this is where I part ways with those who wish to cash, cast Maryland and therefore Baltimore apart from the rest of the South. Uh, even though Maryland didn't fight uh, uh, on the side of the Confederates during the Civil War, you very much, in the aftermath of the Civil War, toward the end of the 19th century, see a sameness uh, in the ways in which Jim Crow segregation is written into law not just custom or practice, but written into law. So in every former slave state, from Maryland to Florida, uh, from the East Coast uh, to the to Great Plains, we see these laws created, which are, uh, the whole purpose is to create a permanent imbalance, a permanent uh, uh, dissimilarity in terms of opportunity between uh, citizens uh, who were formerly enslaved and their descendants and those who were not between uh, white Americans and black Americans. What I think an approach like the book that I have written takes in looking at the response to the construction of Jim Crow from the inside of the community looking outward as opposed to the outside looking in, understanding that is how they responded and reacted more so than what was done to them as we get a sense for how they perceived those challenges and what they understood were the resources. Uh, if I had to use a word to describe that response, that word would be pragmatic. Right? Uh, very pragmatic approaches to understanding the possibilities for resistance, very pragmatic uh, uh, goals in terms of uh, putting that resistance into play. The pragmatism that is a hallmark of the Baltimore struggle and quite frankly the struggle of many African Americans in the South, many black communities in the South, the pragmatism is, is everywhere uh, uh, evident. Uh, and if I should, I can say here as uh, one of the ways in which I try to continually uh, remind the reader that although we're talking about Baltimore, this is really uh, a, a way of seeing Southern history, particularly urban, the, the, city, the cities of the South, is by using other cities 
as often as I can as reference points. So even though this book is about Baltimore, um, I take pains to try to uh, help you understand how Baltimore, for example, was like New Orleans in the ways in which African-Americans confronted and had to deal with, say, police brutality from the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, how Baltimore, like Atlanta, uh, uh, blacks in Atlanta, confronted and then had to deal with the issues related to, from uh, access to housing stock and, and the ability to move around. How Baltimore, uh, like Memphis, like St. Louis, uh, like Richmond, used the growing opportunities from an industrial economy that was really coming into form to combat what Jim Crow segregation intended for them in ways, for example, that their rural counterparts, even within states, uh, were not able to do. Uh, Baltimore in 1930, uh, I suppose is what I'm trying to say, as an ultimate sort of claim or challenge to this notion that Maryland should be seen separately, at least from African-American perspectives. Baltimore has as much uh, in common uh, with Richmond, with New Orleans, with places like uh, uh, Memphis, more so than it has in common with uh, rural districts here in Maryland, uh, more so than it had uh, in common with rural aspects of the rest of the South. So again, I'm not suggesting that the urban framework is one that helps us to understand the South in all, uh, in, in all examples or in all situations, but it is one that helps us to uh, understand how African Americans understood Jim Crow and perceived uh, their responses to it. Uh, in many ways, uh, that is drawn from the truth that Jim Crow was born in southern cities, right? Uh, Jim Crow was an effort uh, when it is reduced to a sort of its basic intent. Jim Crow was an effort to create artificial distance, to create artificial space, to create hierarchy between people who at least possess the potential to be social equals, uh, to be uh, uh, competitors. Uh, when Jim Crow is being created uh, in the 1870s, and certainly when it's coming into its final form in the 1880s, uh, the newspapers, for example, uh, when there are uh, labor strikes or when there is uh, a debate about access to public transit or when there is an argument over the uh, use of funds for new school buildings, the newspapers are, are filled with examples of white citizens, for example, uh, claiming that the whole point of the legal system, the whole point of the jurisprudence system is, and this is almost a, du a direct quote, quote uh, to give the white man the preference. Right? So there's, in ways that we would be shocked to read, well, until last week, in ways that we would be shocked to read uh, our uh, interplay between the citizenry and the government, you know, this was, this was the reality that African Americans coming into cities like Baltimore understood. So uh, uh, as we see them negotiating what they are trying to accomplish in terms of building a life for themselves in these cities, we have to, as historians or have, as readers of history, try to understand them from the perspective of the world they saw as they understood it, not so much from what we would believe uh, uh, 
they could have done or should have done differently. And I know that's a, uh, a bit obvious, but it does bear repeating sometimes because uh, uh, even, even in college classrooms, you know, um, as I'm in, I see a few of you out here who are also college teachers, our, our students, that is one of the more difficult tricks for them to turn to understand that the world as we see it in 2019 is not always the perspective, say, from, of 1919. One of the ways in which I try to tell the Baltimore story, but to link that Baltimore story to a broader, if not regional story in the South, or if not national story, uh, at least a regional story in the South, is by showing or dealing with the development, the growth, and then the interplay of organizations that have footprints here in Baltimore, but also have footprints elsewhere in the United States. Uh, I mentioned the Baltimore NAACP, uh, the Baltimore Urban League, and then later on organizations like the Congress of Racial Equality. Uh, I touch, but not as completely as some other works, for example, I touch on uh, the growth of labor unions and how African Americans received the opportunity that they represented uh, in the 1940s. But one of, I think, the strengths of my book, one of the ways in which it connects to the existing literature on black Baltimore struggle, but then tries to offer things that may not be known is by uh, dealing with uh, entities and organizations that aren't necessarily part of the narrative, part of the way in which we understand the Baltimore Civil Rights book. So in my book, for example, unlike others, you will find out how Booker Washington was involved here in Baltimore, even in silent ways. Uh, you'll find out how Marcus Garvey tried to create uh, and, and nurture his Universal Negro Improvement Association uh, here in Baltimore. You'll get a sense for the ways in which, uh, uh, although the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People had a strong, powerful national headquarters in New York, that Baltimore, like Atlanta, like Memphis, and even outside the South, places like Detroit, they very much understood the relationship to be local first, national second. And you get a sense of the NAACP as a national organization struggling to make its national agenda while understanding that its strength lays in its various localities and the ability of local people, certainly the Baltimore NAACP being one of that, to flex their muscle and to shape the national agenda from on the ground uh, in uh, southern places uh, like Baltimore. But more than uh, sort of anything else, uh, one of the things I try to accomplish with the, uh, with the book is to bring everyday people as often as I can find them or as often as I can, I can use them in the existing records, bring everyday people into what we already understand to be this sort of a narrative uh, resistance. Um, I, when I began, I talked about uh, the, the, uh, the civil rights movement being very much a known and therefore disfigured uh, part of our, our, our popular understanding as Americans. You know, the civil rights movement for most of us is like a few other moments of, of national memory. Even if we don't necessarily agree on the finer points, we think we all sort of uh, have the gist of the civil rights movement, like the American Revolution, like the uh, uh, Civil War. Uh, but what we're able to do when we bring everyday people 
uh, into the narrative is to see the ways in which the Baltimore example suggests nuance to that narrative that we hadn't previously uh, uh, understood, and then to see how that nuance, that Baltimore nuance, connects with evidence in other books about other places. So thanks to the ty this type of perspective, again, not only do we see African Americans here in Baltimore um, working to resist Jim Crow from the very beginning, but again, we see them doing things that were very similar, uh, but wholly uncoordinated, or at least loosely coordinated, uh, with work going on elsewhere in the country, even uh, elsewhere in the urban South. Uh, the book is divided into two parts, and in terms of local people's uh, uh, participation, the second part of the book, the, the, the third, the, 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 uh, the final three chapters of a six-chapter uh, book is really uh, useful in this way. Um, one of the most rewarding aspects of doing this work, uh, for me at least, uh, comes to fruition in the second half of the book. Um, I was able to, as I said in the opening, use oral history collections uh, from uh, repositories around the state. And, and uh, you would be surprised, if you're not an oral historian or you're not sort of familiar with that work, you would be surprised uh, what a legacy we have in terms of collections, both transcribed as well as uh, existing audio. Uh, the uh, Most of the well-known figures, for example, of the Baltimore Civil Rights Movement uh, who were still alive in the mid-1960s uh, did or, uh, audio uh, recordings uh, with the Maryland Historical Societies, quite literally dozens of, of, of uh, different sessions, uh, and uh, they're available to use. Uh, the same can be said for uh, materials here, both in the African-American collection specifically of the library, but also uh, in the library's general collection. Uh, the universities uh, in and around the city of Baltimore have similar projects. UMBC is particularly useful in that way. Uh, but for me, the aspect of the oral history work that went into uh, this, um, this project was most rewarding for the people that I could actually uh, talk to myself. And I see a few of you who were connected with me uh, in that work. Um, for education, uh, where I deal, for example, with the desegregation of the education, public education system here in Baltimore. Uh, I was fortunate to be connected with uh, the Alumni Association of what was then Western High School for Girls. And I, I literally talked uh, with dozens of young women, uh, dozens of women about when they were young women. <laughs> And, and the same goes for those of you who are younger Baltimoreans, the same goes for Eastern High School for girls. Uh, I, I talked to a few people who were teachers in uh, the school systems in the 1940s, 1950s, uh, including uh, 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 the gentleman who just ran unsuccessfully for mayor, uh, for uh, governor of the state of Maryland, uh, Mr. Jealous. Uh, both his, his mother, who was a student, and his grandmother, who were a teacher, made time for me. Um, and it was through what initially became an investigation of education that I began to see such a big picture uh, and how people understood their struggle, not only interconnected with 
the larger efforts around the South and around the country, but how they understood their struggle in one aspect of their life connected to other aspects of their lives. So uh, talking with educators about what it meant to teach or students about what it meant to learn at a time of transition also helped me to understand how they navigated the public space of downtown Baltimore, how they navigated the residential space of, 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 of moving out into different parts of the city as opportunities presented themselves. Uh, Dr. Harley, uh, who is in the back, and I'm going to say hi to uh, uh, after we concluded, conclude uh, her family story uh, touched all of these aspects. And her father uh, was working for Bethlehem Steel, so he brought a, opened a whole new world. And I said all that to say, uh, for those of you who are sort of interested, uh, even if it's not about Baltimore, um, we have been conditioned to understand history, to understand the world through the eyes of quote-unquote leaders. But uh, uh, that understanding is incomplete and often uh, inaccurate if we don't take, example, uh, take examples from the people who were, uh, for want of a better phrase, the followers, who were the supporters, who were behind the scenes, because they often help us understand. Uh, as I said at the beginning, uh, this project started out as a biography of uh, uh, Carl James Murphy, who was the editor-in-chief and president and publisher of the Baltimore Afro-American for decades. Uh, and the reason that it began to morph into something else is because I began to see uh, what Mr. Murphy uh, uh, championed in the Afro, what he reported on in the Afro, uh, what he found uh, useful about the shifting rhythm of struggle over the course of the 30s and the 40s and the 50s. Uh, was not often something he dictated to his readers, but that, you know, as any good journalism student would tell you, that he pulled from his readers' perspective on the worlds that they were confronting. So uh, the oral histories uh, helped me, and I, I think it comes through uh, best uh, um, in the chapters of the book where I talk about residential life, where I talk about uh, educational life. Um, One other aspect, I think, and this sort of ties, helps you to understand why a book like this would be useful if you're trying to understand uh, something about civil rights history sort of writ large, right? Uh, this book's time frame begins in the 1890s and ends in the 1950s. And uh, betraying something of my perspective in the book's subtitle, uh, uh, Confronting Jim Crow Before the Movement, um, I don't challenge the idea of a civil rights movement beginning, uh, the, the date I use is February 1st, 1960, with the Greensboro sit-in. Right? Um, but I do so not creating a hierarchy that suggests that something that, the things that came before 1960 were somehow less than important or precursors or uh, building blocks too. Uh, it's really more an acknowledgement of the fact that what was the civil rights movement, as I suggested before, what we capture, what we remember as the civil rights movement, was really uh, an effort to acknowledge or a, an effort to recognize when others outside of the African-American community acknowledged the struggle that they had been undertaking uh, for decades prior. Uh, 
if I had written a different book or if I had taken this book in a different direction as, an exp as a sort of uh, building on of this theme, if I had taken the book in a different direction, this would have been a history of television and the civil rights movement. Uh, our modern sensibilities probably do not appreciate the way in which television really accelerated not simply communication, but how we believe, we understand, and how we shift our national priorities, our regional priorities, our local priorities uh, across a wide variety of issues and topics that could otherwise use our attention. For the subject that I am uh, uh, taking on, uh, it is in 1960 that the African-American civil rights struggle begins to receive the prioritization from the national government, from the federal government, and uh, even begrudgingly from uh, state and local governments for a wide variety of reasons, many of which that um, I talk about. And a lot of these reasons are the product of resistance work that African Americans themselves have done in the preceding decades that are only coming to, to bear. So when I talk about the civil rights movement, half uh, beginning quite literally after the last page of this book. I'm not in any way, shape, or form uh, suggesting that what takes place in the book is somehow unimportant to understanding the civil rights movement. You know, at, at my university where I teach, uh, to suggest that somehow February 1st, 1960 is important to understand student protests in terms of sit-ins is almost sacrilegious. Uh, at Morgan, uh, there is a very old, very well memorialized, very well uh, 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 preserved effort of student protest that includes sit-ins that date to the 1940s uh, at, at, at the latest. So I'm not suggesting that what Morgan students were doing in the 40s and in the 50s uh, is somehow less than what took place after 1960. What I'm saying is after 1960, the rest of America, America outside of black America, America outside of the American black South began to take note and we have understood it and, and memorialized it uh, uh, in that way. And, um, Another element, I think, that we often attribute to the uh, civil rights movement that has evidence taking place here in Baltimore and in other areas of the South prior to the timeline that we normally associate with the civil rights movement is the idea of interracialism. One of the things, one of the products, uh, you know, it can be a chicken or an egg uh, argument if you sort of really chew on it, is the fact that after 1960, we see Americans who are not African-American actively involved in the civil rights movement, actively participating in resistance efforts, actively supporting uh, uh, legislative calls, uh, litigation efforts, uh, 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 protest actions. And we often attribute this idea that people other than African-Americans were concerned with African-Americans' civil rights efforts after 1960. Well, in uh, this book, which deals with Baltimore, we see an interracialist tradition that, again, dates at least to the 1930s. 
uh, and we try to understand how and why and to what effect uh, uh, this interracialism is able to both reflect and then shape the goals and outcomes of the civil rights struggle as it takes place uh, here in Baltimore. So I think that uh, by trying to understand Baltimore both for its local importance, its local fact pattern, its local narrative, but then tying that narrative to what we can understand African Americans trying to accomplish for themselves out of a necessity of a Jim Crow era, and then ultimately how and why and what circumstances transpire that allowed that resistance struggle to gain the national attention that it otherwise had not, perceived, had not received prior to the 1960s, prior to what uh, uh, scholars have come to call the King years. Um, understanding that is a much more useful exercise to uh, modern day people grasping the importance of what the civil rights struggle was about. Modern day people taking the lessons of what the civil rights struggle was ultimately after and sort of drilling down uh, into um, what was useful about that civil rights struggle and how its uses can be uh, uh, not necessarily replicated, uh, but be put to their, uh, to, their, to their best use, if you will, uh, as we attempt to uh, struggle on, uh, uh, for want of a better, better description. So I would say, um, sort of in closing here, um, for those of you who are uh, scholars in the field, um, this book would be uh, quite useful in helping you to knit together some of the uh, spaces, some of the gaps uh, in understanding the why of the Baltimore struggle uh, uh, in terms of how and why it developed when it did and what its relevance was to the rest of uh, the struggle elsewhere in the South and certainly in the nation uh, for a time period that is not generally appreciated outside of, say, the activities of the NAACP. For those of you who are just fans or lovers of history, I think you will read in this book some aspects of the Baltimore struggle uh, that simply have not appeared uh, 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 elsewhere. And not that uh, they are uh, revelatory in the way that they're going to shift uh, what you necessarily think to be true about the black struggle, say, in the 1920s or 1930s, but they will bring Baltimore into the story in ways that Baltimore had not been brought into the story or understood to have been part of the story. Um, uh, you know, Booker Washington still will be a problematic figure after you finish reading this book for his, his basic conservatism. But one thing that made the African-American struggle for civil rights here uh, in Maryland different than, say, Alabama or Georgia or even nearby Virginia is that African-Americans did not lose the right to vote at the turn of the 20th century like they did in the other former slaveholding states. And a lot of that has to do with Booker Washington's behind-the-scenes work to make sure that the legislators, uh, the uh, other organizations, uh, uh, the Catholic Church, uh, where he had sway, he could use that sway to help 
defeat the effort to take away the vote uh, from black men. Similarly, similarly, your understanding of the Great Migration, a, a classic American sort of story. Uh, this will help you to see ways in which our appreciation for the Great Migration uh, can be expanded. Right? We generally think of the Great Migration for folks you know, leaving rural Georgia and heading to Harlem, leaving rural Mississippi and going to Chicago or Detroit, leaving rural Texas and going to Los Angeles. Uh, but before black Americans, rural black Americans, left the countryside of the southern former slave states and headed to those great industrial cities, they headed to places like Baltimore. They headed to places like Louisville, to places like Birmingham, Alabama, to Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, the urban south was the first destination for the first 40 years easily of urban migration by rural blacks beginning in about the 1880s and certainly through the end of World War I, uh, even continuing during the Great Depression years in ways in which it did not necessarily continue outside of the region. You know? And there's a history of urbanization early on in the book, and I'll just say this briefly, uh, you know, it's, it's not happenstance. You know? uh, for those of you who know anything about the history of slavery or specifically the, hi the, uh, the history of resistance to slavery and the runaway slaves, you know, uh, what, what is Frederick Douglass uh, famous for uh, in terms of his, his, his flight, that he, he understood the importance of Baltimore? Uh, you know, uh, if you've read any of the, uh, the more recent biographies of Harriet Tubman, you understand how cities in the South were very important to um, uh, what she was able to accomplish in assisting runaways. If you've ever spent time on any of the database websites, that have uh, runaway slave ads and sort of a, a plug uh, uh, the state archives for those of you who are doing genealogy here in the state of Maryland. Uh, uh, the Maryland State Archives has a website uh, that quite literally has 10,000 plus runaway slave advertisements just from Maryland newspapers uh, for the uh, 1800s, the uh, beginning about the 1810s through at least the end of slavery in the 1860s. And I mention that to say, if you take five minutes going through those ads, you will see how important the notion of reaching a city, a southern city, was to African Americans attempting to, to resist. So I said all that to say the idea that black Americans, as they're facing this new challenge of Jim Crow, would still hold the idea of urbanization, of, of, of getting to a city, of, of of moving away from the vulnerabilities and the isolation that rural life often entails, to building their community within the community, and if, if you will, why those things were, uh, were sort of important. And then lastly, um, I hope you, uh, whether you are a scholar or just an everyday reader of history, I hope you are left with an impression of the power of everyday people to change the course of their lives and thereby uh, change the course of history. Uh, one of the most impressive uh, aspects of this history that I came to more fully understand during the course of this research uh, was the notion of, of, of families and family units uh, impacting this history. Um, everybody is, well, most people uh, who are adults are familiar with uh, Brown versus the Board of Education. 
the uh, Supreme Court decision in 1954, which ultimately uh, outlawed not only segregation in public schools, but also uh, was the foundation for a much wider desegregation. Well, in the urban South, particularly here in Baltimore, while Brown was important, uh, there were other decisions, earlier decisions even, that had as, as great an impact by and large. One of them, for example, was a 1948 dis, uh, Supreme Court decision uh, against uh, restrictions in housing uh, through tools known as restrictive covenants. Uh, it used to be that uh, neighborhood associations could enter into contracts with one another, private associations to say who you could and could not sell a house to. Right? Uh, Baltimore had been the first city in the United States to attempt to do this by legislation in the early 1810s, which the Supreme Court ultimately struck down. But these private agreements, these uh, uh, restrictive covenants, uh, took up the work of legislative housing restriction and held a firm grip on where people could legally live. I mean, quite frankly, even if a white homeowner was willing to sell, that person could be uh, sued by their neighbors. And there are plenty of examples of it uh, here in Baltimore. Uh, the most famous example would be a Reverend uh, Edmund Meade who bought his home uh, in, in what is known as the old Goucher community, just north of North Avenue, where Goucher College used to restrict, paid for his house, his neighbors sued, uh, and he was told he couldn't live in the house that he still ultimately had to pay for. So uh, this, this type of restriction, as mundane as something as where you could live, had a broad impact on people's perceptions of freedom and their access to uh, uh, other forms of everyday life that we take advantage of. So in 1948, when Shelley v. Kramer, the U.S. Supreme Court decision, took the teeth out of the enforcement aspect of restrictive covenants, while there were no real marches, there were no real rallies, there were no real efforts to organize, we see everyday people uh, coming home uh, with, uh, from their uh, time at World War II, taking up at least better paying jobs than they might get in a rural environment at Bethlehem Steel and uh, other aspects of a modern industrial uh, a, a community and taking these uh, resources and buying homes in these neighborhoods whether the people there like them or not. And I don't mean that to suggest confrontation. I mean the courage uh, and the courage of a, a husband and a wife, of a mother and a father to willingly put their children in uh, a contested environment, to put their children in a potentially confrontational environment uh, for the uh, express goal of improving their everyday life, uh, I think was a wonderful, quiet testament to the ways in which uh, everyday people, people who you know, never made a speech, may not even, even join the NAACP, may not have belonged to a church, but were willing to use what they had pragmatically to force. So much of the growth that we see in the communities covered by my, uh, my book uh, comes from or tries to reclaim, recapture uh, the quiet, uh, the quiet strength of, of these types of people. So um, I'm trying very hard not to sort of go blow by blow, and I'm not sure I've given you as full of an appreciation for the book uh, as I want. But I'll just sort of uh, end my overview uh, uh, this way. I think that uh, what I came away with 
after uh, completing the research uh, for this book was uh, an understanding that what we believe to know about how people resisted this particular form of oppression, racial segregation, uh, and related entities in the early 20th century. Uh, we have only begun to sort of uh, put our minds around it. We have, it's a cliche, only begun to scratch the surface. Uh, when we are able to move away from our uh, necessary, I think, obsession uh, with leadership and broad strategy and broad pronouncements and programs of, of you know, governors like McKeldin, of organizational leaders like uh, Lily Jackson, uh, of, of entities like the Congress for Industrial Organizations. You know, we can use those places as starting points, but uh, to get a real feel for how and why everyday people participated either in person with their, themselves and their bodies or with their resources and their voices, we really need to dig a little deeper. And I think uh, when we dig deeper, we will see a much uh, more nuanced struggle against Jim Crow that had goals that in many ways uh, were very different. Uh, this helps us to understand uh, when the civil rights movement arrives, when it accomplishes what it accomplishes, why people uh, uh, perhaps reacted uh, as they do. Um, so that is essentially what I attempted to accomplish um, with the book. Um, I'm happy to talk more specifically about um, uh, individuals in the book or, or subject matter that I covered, or if you have a specific research question or even a family history question, a neighborhood question, I'm happy to, uh, to entertain any questions you might have about Baltimore's uh, civil rights history. So we have time for some Q&A, not much, but we do have a few, uh, about 10 minutes. And afterwards, David will be signing a few copies of his book in the back. So, so any questions? Hello. Thank you very much for your presentation. Um, question I have has to do with your point about looking at history not only through the eyes of the leaders, but also through what you call followers. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering whether you could talk about the black churches sure. in terms of the leadership mm -hmm. and also the, the members of the congregation and, and the role that they played and what difference that sure. you think it made in any significant uh, absolutely, way. Absolutely, absolutely. Wonderful question. Um, organizations as expressions of community uh, play a big role in, in what I try to accomplish. Uh, you will find from the beginning, you will find from the beginning of this work to the end, the church is ubiquitous, the church is everywhere. Um, again, part of it, it deals with the bias that we have from attempting to understand everything about civil rights history from the perspective that we take in from what we believe we understand about the 1960s, right? Um, um, if I say things that are sort of jarring, I don't mean to, so um, please, you can have a follow-up question. But, you know, in order to, for us to have the Martin Luther King Jr. that we have historically as a popular sort of a character in popular memory, 
uh, as it played out, uh, we had to be told that no one had ever done what he did before and he was the bravest. And again, I'm not taking shots. I, Dr. King is, is one of my heroes. My next book is very much about him. So I'm not taking a shot at him, but I'm simply saying the idea that uh, uh, the clergy was do nothing before he showed them how to do something is something that scholars and who are dealing with subject matter like this have to write against. But in Baltimore, as in most urban communities, particularly in the South, the church and leadership from the church was something that was there from the beginning. Union Baptist Church, the Baptists particularly in this city, but also the Methodists and the Methodist Episcopal, they were all part and parcel. Um, if the churches, for example, were as conservative and uh, detached as we are led to believe, why is it that the Universal Negro Improvement Association of Marcus Garvey had most of its early organizational efforts out of churches? Uh, that some of uh, the Baltimore UNIA's most prominent leaders were the leaders of Trinity Baptist Church, for example. Um, the litigation tradition which we uh, are made to understand was the importance of the pre-Brown era all grows out of efforts of black churches. Uh, the first, what we call first civil rights organization here in Baltimore that was concerned primarily with litigation comes out of the Baptist Church, uh, Union Baptist and Harvey Johnson and what he is doing uh, in the 1880s, not only in litigation, but also linking him to Garvey, uh, separatist movements. Uh, he didn't have a back to Africa movement, but he had something that he called his Texas Purchase Movement. He believed that the conditions, quote unquote, between the races had deteriorated to a point that blacks needed their own homeland, a form of black nationalism, and he believed that sparsely populated Texas could be a place. So again, you will see from people like Harvey Johnson at the end of the 19th century all the way to people like Marcus Wood at Providence, I believe, uh, working and leading and serving a social, just, a social gospel or social justice uh, mission uh, everywhere throughout the book. So, sorry. Yes, sir. You answered my question. Thank okay. you. Anyone else have a question? Uh, as uh, someone who's written about Baltimore being on the middle ground, I, I actually really like your idea of abandoning that whole um, idea and just really looking at Baltimore as being part of the South. I think that it's a great new perspective that we're not really used to seeing Baltimore in. Yeah. I think it's, um, it's, I'm sorry, go ahead. But I, I was, um, well, my question is actually, if you could give um, an example. Uh, you talked about the pragmatic approach mm -hmm. that uh, that people had in the early days of the of the um, in, you know the nineteenth late nineteenth um, century and mm. early twentieth century, so I, I was wondering if you could actually give an example mm. of a campaign or or some kind of um, movement that uh, succeeded in in making some kind of change. Uh, using uh, that in, in the eighteen, the late nineteenth century, you yeah, or oh, yeah, sure, sure, or sure. Okay. in the early days. Okay, really quick. Okay, well, quickly, uh, just a. Uh, continue the point about the middle ground. Uh, sure. The middle ground, middle ground border states. Uh, in American history, there were sort of three entities that are involved in the Civil War, right? There, is, there are the 11, I believe, southern states that formally 
withdraw, that secede from the Union to form their own country, the Confederate States of America. And then there are the States of the Union that do not allow slavery anymore by the time the Civil War uh, uh, is created. But then there are these uh, four, I believe, states that do not secede but are still slaveholding states. They are called the border states or the, uh, the, the middle ground specifically when you're talking about Maryland. And this is more... This speaks more, I think, to what we're familiar, we're familiar with when we talk about the ways in which our understanding of the Civil War and our understanding of the Confederacy has been shifted in the last 60 or 75 years, the whole lost cause thing. But the idea that somehow um, the Confederacy was more important than other aspects for understanding our civil rights history. But uh, what I'm suggesting about the fact that the border ground or middle ground um, uh, uh, framework isn't useful because it doesn't explain how African Americans, everyday black folk, understood their world. You know, no one ever migrated from Maryland to North Carolina because Maryland was, quote, unquote, the middle ground, right? Uh, or there were no African Americans who couldn't send their kid to the nearest school because of Jim Crow segregation who felt any sort of, you know, uh, comfort in the fact, well, at least I'm not in equally segregated in Virginia. It it didn't have a real everyday sort of application. You see this refusal to accept those sorts of higher level conversations almost from the beginning, right? Um, in the 1880s, I mentioned uh, the uh, African-American uh, clergy. Uh, much of the infrastructure that would be uh, part of the struggle is put in place and largely by African-American clergymen. Uh, the, the gentleman I mentioned a, a few minutes ago, Harvey Johnson, uh, even though he's a pastor, you know, he, he organizes other clergy for the purpose of legislative lobby, for the purpose of litigation, for the purpose of community education and voter uh, uh, education, his organization, the Mutual United uh, Brotherhood of Liberty, uh, has lawsuits, some of them successful, against uh, public transit, particularly steam lines. And, uh, there's a famous case where um, uh, four of his parishioners, four, uh, four sisters who live together and worship at Union Baptist, who go home for Virginia to Virginia to visit their mother and are uh, for the first time, uh, as, as they experienced it, for the first time made to or allowed to buy first-class tickets, but then given third-class, really, accommodations uh, by force of law, uh, you know, they take their case to Reverend Johnson, who organizes a defense that ultimately uh, leads to a successful uh, a lawsuit case. Uh, so we see that type of infrastructure, and even, uh, you know, the Afro-American newspaper, um, uh, I don't know this. It's purposeful, and I don't mean I, don't, I, I struggle to call it a misrepresentation because I don't believe it's a misrepresentation, but the uh, or at least a purposeful one. But the actual founder, as scholars before me readily show, the actual founder of the Afro is a Black Baptist preacher, right? Who understands that in order to fulfill his social justice mission, he needs a secular paper to go along with what they otherwise produce uh, for congregants and for the religious community. Um, uh, the first African-American public schools that are new built, you know, brand new built uh, for blacks uh, as they're moving into the West Baltimore neighborhoods are the result of the work of black clergy 
uh, organizing and leading petition against City Hall. So we see, you know, the church as a central figure in the community, but more so uh, uh, clergymen themselves leading. And their leading uh, uh, produces the examples of other folk who are, again, coming to the city, particularly to the west side. If I didn't mention, um, much of the book deals with the growth of West Baltimore, uh, largely because West Baltimore emerges as a black enclave, almost in lockstep. Uh, with the emergence of Jim Crow, uh, and there are many synergies about how blacks resist uh, in Jim Crow, resist Jim Crow that are very much tied to the type of community that they're building there in West Baltimore. So I hope I answered your question. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Uh, thank you very much uh, for the talk. This is really good. Uh, my question is related to, I guess, sources, in particular oral histories. Mm -hmm. Um, I think they, are, they can be a really powerful source. Um, I have two like questions related to that. Number one was, um, when you looked at the transcripts or the recorded histories, oral histories, um, sometimes I wonder like what was the purpose of those, and did you think about like okay, why did they do these interviews back then, and mm -hmm. did it affect you know your thought process of how to use that source? And then the second one was just how many sources, how many oral histories did you did you feel that you need to do or get to be able to get, okay, this is a strong enough source to say, like, I've got a theme here because, sure, sure. you know, it's people's memories and how they yeah, answer well, it, so. I'll say the answer to the last one first. Um, there's a good chunk of them that did not necessarily influence the final form of the book the way I had envisioned them uh, forming, um, which is to say, When I did the oral histories that I did, I was very concerned with making it about the person that I was interviewing more so than about an event that I thought they might have insight on. And since these were, uh, you know, self-professed everyday folk who couldn't understand why, you know, this graduate student from Howard or this professor from Morgan wanted to talk to them, you know, I've just worked here and done this. Uh, it was, it was very easy to allow them. Um, particularly the ladies. Uh, old men are hard to interview because they just give you yes or no answers. But um, to allow them not necessarily to tell you a singularly important story, but because they were selected for their relative presence at a time and a place, you know, as a student in a school or as a resident in a neighborhood at a certain point in history, what they really did was uh, buttress each other's perspectives but also give nuance and, and connections uh, that you can only get really from uh, interviewing a lot of people uh, over the course of, of, um, of the time of your research. Uh, but more than that, um, as I said, there are repositories um, that have been doing this for decades. Um, I think the oldest collection that I used um, I don't remember the organization that funded it originally, but I believe it's called the Baltimore Neighborhoods Project. It was done in the mid to late 70s. It's housed at UMBC. And these are literally men and women who worked at Best Deal or lived in Baltimore at a time when neighborhoods were sort of uh, demographically changing over, uh, who were just reflecting about their everyday lives. And um, for me, 
because of the perspective of the everyday folk, everyday people that I was trying to use. Um, I quite literally, if we include the ones I did myself, as well as the ones I accessed that have been done by others, there are probably 45 or 50 oral histories uh, listed in my bibliography. So, um, but again, a good, a good chunk of the stuff didn't even fit really what I was trying to do. So uh, there's stories from that collection that I, I simply didn't have room to tell them what I was writing. So, so um, it's a lot in this book, as you could probably tell by my inability really, I think, to uh, put my mind around it in uh, uh, 40 minutes or so. Um, again, I would just uh, in, in encourage you to think this is going to sound a criticism, so I'm not from Baltimore, so please don't hold this against me. But I've been here for about 20 years. I don't believe that as a collective group of sort of people who have a collective memory, I guess that's a better way to say it, Baltimore really appreciates the impact it's made on America, right? Um, this city, uh, and from my work, this city, for the fact of its very size, really developed a leadership role in especially what became the Southern Black struggle that uh, it has failed to, I think, really make best use of. The, the local story is important and you should never let that go, but connecting the local story to the national story, I think, is where Baltimore uh, history telling needs to go next. You would, if you pick up uh, books about Baltimore and Louisville and Memphis and New Orleans, a lot of the scholars are real, still using phrasing like, I'm telling this story because it's so unique. Well, if you read them all, you realize it's not unique, and we need to find ways to sort of talk about how they are together, and, and, and I think you will see Baltimore's role really shine. A lot, I mean, there's a very real, very understandable reason if you stand back and look at the big, big picture, why Baltimore produced Juanita Jackson Mitchell, why Baltimore produced Thurgood Marshall, right? These people weren't just from here, they were from here. And I think understanding that story would really go a long way to helping us see the bigger picture because so much of what we have, we understand about the Southern Civil Rights Movement is about well-meaning black and white Northerners, black and white Northern money, presidential politics, legislative agendas, coming to help these poor Southerners finally get rid of their antiquated. And nothing could be further from the truth. You know, there have been books written about Mississippi that show us how these rural people were really holding on to uh, their struggle, to shape their struggle, particularly in the, uh, the 50s and the 60s, and to take help, but also to continue to lead their struggle. If that's true in rural Mississippi, it's 50,000 times more true in Baltimore. And Baltimore had the ability to resist the national NAACP in ways that Meridian, Mississippi, for example, did not. So David, thank you for this important work and your scholarship on this work. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.